wars don't get fought with team building exercises. Teams get built with team building exercises and then, but go, then they fight go fight wars. wars. Yeah, yeah. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Dara Lind, and we have special guest Zach Beecham joining us from uh, from the Farn team, from the yeah, Worldly Podcast. I think if last month's Worldly Weeds crossover was diplomatic exchange, this is more of a border raid. We have taken Zach and we are bringing him here to make us understand the authorization for use of military force. Or Help, AUMF. I'm being held in the weeds against my will. <laughs> We had some important, important legal questions. You know, Donald Trump uh, launched some some airstrikes against the government of Syria recently. Um, it got a fair amount of attention. Uh, but, like, the whole question of a legal basis for doing that, it seemed to me, received, like, very little attention. There was no consideration. I, I guess a few days afterwards, there was a story that, Defense Secretary Mattis had suggested that they seek congressional authorization for this, but then he stridently denied it. Trump also did actually bother to send a letter to Congress, which is, you know, a little more proactive than I believe. It's certainly more proactive than he was in 2017 when he did basically the exact same thing. But he sent a letter to Congress on Sunday night saying, FYI, we're pretty sure this is legal. K thanks. No, the the argument was article was Article Two of the U.S. Constitution, right, which is the thing that gives the president the power to wage war. But this is kind of a ridiculous argument, right? Because Article One of the U.S. Constitution says that Congress is the is the branch that should be authorizing wars to begin with, and Article Two gives the president the ability to wage the war, not like unilaterally declare them on their own. If the president has Article Two powers to like start wars, then there's literally no limitation on presidential power. Well, but I mean, to give to give the unlimited presidential power argument its due, right? I mean, there's a there's a conceptual clash, it seems to me, in the Constitution between the idea that Congress has the power to declare war, but the president is the commander in chief of the military, right? Because presumably, what it means for the president to be commander in chief of the military is that his orders will be followed. So if the president says shoot some missiles like that that is a proper military order that is meant to be passed down the chain of command they do what they are supposed to do and so to not do that would be a serious bug i think in the in the legal practice at the same time i mean the power of congress to declare war probably means something, right? I mean, if you're trying to think like a lawyer, it's like, well, why would you write it in there if that did not constrain the president in some way? And if the president can, in fact, just order a military attack on a foreign country, then it seems that Congress's power to declare war is, in fact, totally meaningless. And the Syria thing, obviously, this is not the first time a president has has ordered military action. But it's poses the question in a kind of weird boiling of the frog sort of way because American military forces have been involved in Syrian territory for a while now because the missile strikes were not it wasn't that many missiles and it would did not initiate like an ongoing string of combat so it doesn't feel like that big of a deal, right? Like this happened a little bit like a week ago and it already feels like who cares? We've had a million like Michael Cohn news cycles since then. But conceptually, if you can order an attack on a sovereign foreign state with no congressional involvement under your Article 2 powers, then it seems like there's no limit at all 
on presidential warmaking power. Yeah, I, I think the the frog boiling metaphor is exactly the right metaphor to use here because it's worth noting that like this conceptual clash has always existed in theory. It's been it's been latent in the Constitution, but it took the major conflict that the U.S. was facing being not national, but inter you know not not international in the sense of between nations, but global in the sense of the fight against the Soviet Union for it to kind of become a problem. And then the war on terror, you know, where non-state actors can be a subject of state force as much as state actors has made it, you know, a problem of a different kind. So, you know, the the kind of thumbnail history here is that the Korean War is the first major thing that we call a war that wasn't declared as a war. And then with Vietnam, and especially with the secret bombing campaign in Cambodia, the Nixon administration was basically like, well, if we don't ask Congress to declare it a war, they don't have to declare it a war, we can do whatever we want. Congress said, okay, we're going to pass the War Powers Resolution, which says you can't boil the frog without telling us you're boiling the frog and giving us the opportunity to, you know, stop you from boiling the frog. all the listeners know the apocryphal story. Oh my gosh! Of if you the don't, frog. The, the frog metaphor is basically that you know, theoretically, if you put a frog in a pot of w- water and slowly turn up the heat, the frog will not jump out of the water. There is no point at which the frog will go, "Oh shit, I'm in trouble," and hop out. So you can actually get the frog up to boiling, where you have cooked the frog and the frog is dead without the frog noticing that anything is wrong. This is not backed up by science, mind you, but it's an extremely potent metaphor, uh, which was used by, I believe, Glenn Beck back in the Obama days. Um, but which is, you know, Man, generally. That, between that and the Overton window, he is great at introducing concepts that are useful, despite himself being loony. Yes. Um, so, so since the War Powers Resolution, the debate has basically been, is the frog boiling or not? Because the term in the War Powers Resolution is his hostilities. So basically everything since then has been, does this count as hostilities under the War Powers Resolution, not does this count as a war? It's still a definitional argument. Yeah. I mean, the serious stuff is particularly tricky because there's actually two distinct kind of wars going on in there, each of which could have different forms of legal authorization. So like the U.S. ground troop presence in Syria, right, that is about fighting ISIS. Right? They're mostly special forces. They're there to make sure that a hostile terrorist group doesn't get a foothold and you know, really successfully shut down their empire there. That is arguably justifiable under the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which was passed after 9-11 as justification for going after al-Qaeda wherever they are. So since ISIS is an offshoot, arguably, it doesn't really matter. They have the same anti-American goals. You might as well be able to kill them under that law. That's contentious. Lots of people disagree about that, but there's a statutory basis, right? But striking Syria... Like the actual Syrian government, which is not ISIS's friend, really. Like that's a complicated relationship, but they're definitely not allies in a formal sense or part of the same organization. There's no justification from the 2001 AUMF. So it really is a really – it's a really bald assertion of presidential power that's distinct from the ongoing operations that have been happening in Syria. Yeah, there's actually the justice argument is because of a legal case that I hope we'll get into a little later uh, has actually been forced to to try to make the argument that, you know, there's an ISIS justification under the 2001 AUMF. It actually like explicitly used the classical literature argument of like not just calling it a hydra, but calling it the Lernaean hydra, um, which seems awfully specific. But, you know, so the DOJ characterizes them as two heads of this hydra that has kind of sprung up as a result of the war on terror and says, just because they're two different heads of the hydra doesn't mean we weren't 
you know, we don't have power to fight all the heads of the Hydra. Uh, the ACLU, which is representing the other side in this, kind of counterbriefed. Congress never told the president to go fight a Hydra. They they told them to go fight, you know, the monster responsible for 9-11. Okay. I'm going to take a break, and I, I think we should get into the history of that 2001 AUMF because it's, it's relevant to the discussion, even if not exactly to the serious strike. Do you like to learn? I do, and, and I hope that you do because I, I, I hope that's why you listen to the reads. Otherwise, I don't know, may, maybe you just love my voice. But, but I think you probably are a lifelong learner, and if you are, The Great Courses Plus is the streaming service that's created for people like us. Uh, so, you know, they've been sponsoring us for a long time. Maybe you've signed up already, but if you haven't signed up yet, you really should. They give you unlimited access to thousands of amazing lectures. Uh, you learn from the world's best professors, greatest experts about anything that interests you. Uh, they've got the history of Eastern Europe, which frankly is topic I love, the mysteries of human behavior. You can try to learn a new language, do whatever you want, and you can watch The Great Courses Plus anytime, anywhere. You can listen along with The Great Courses Plus app. What we're talking about lately is their course on the modern political tradition. Uh, this is like really the sort of foundational work that that understands you know Western politics in the United States, but also in Europe. The big ideas that, that put on the table, the, the notions of rights, rule of law, uh, the, the function of the state, starting from, from Hobbes and Locke and, and uh, Rousseau uh, coming forward. This is really like great stuff. You probably don't think about day-to-day politics in terms of, of these thinkers, um, but the ideas that they put on the table really shape everything that we talk about. Uh, so I know you're going to get so much out of The Great Courses Plus, so we've got a special limited time offer for you. It is one free month of unlimited access to enjoy all their lectures, but to get it, you need to sign up with our special URL. So start your free month today. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. This is Yochi Driesen from Worldly, Fox's weekly podcast on the most important stories in the world. I've worked in journalism for nearly 20 years, and even I feel a bit overwhelmed by the news right now. There's President Trump and Vladimir Putin. I had a uh, call with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. And there's the North Korean nuclear crisis. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then there's the Russia investigation. The Russians may have something on him personally uh, that they could always roll out and make his life more difficult. Want to make sense of all of this? Subscribe to Worldly. We're unpacking all of these stories and more every week. Come find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Okay, so, you know, Darren mentioned Vietnam. There had been a a sort of a broad expansion of presidential war-making powers. Post-Vietnam, there's an effort by Congress to kind of reel it back in. Um, Significant clashes around this exist in the the 1980s. I mean, were there big fights between Congress and the Reagan administration about not even – there was no sending of American soldiers to Central America, but trying to do funding and logistical support for for right-wing groups there. Uh, Big fights about this, an assertive Congress. And then we have in the Persian Gulf War – a sort of what seems like a, a new model of war making where there isn't a declaration of war in the classical sense, but there is a clear congressional vote, right? Where George H.W. Bush, he is the military lined up, they're sort of poised for action, and he says, as part of the like bigger 
military and diplomatic strategy here. I want you to authorize the use of military force. Uh, so that happens. He, he gets that. There is a war. It comes to a conclusion. And we sort of move on, right? So then after 9-11, there's overwhelming support for a military response of some kind to the terrorist attacks. Congress is asked to vote on a resolution. And I would say what was in people's heads at the time was that this is about doing an invasion of Afghanistan to overthrow the Taliban. But the resolution doesn't say that. Right. Like the resolution is quite broadly written and it's it's about like going after the groups and individuals that were responsible for the attacks and those who support them. So, something like that. Right? Yeah. The, the key phrase is Al Qaeda and associated forces. Right. Because associated forces could be lots of different things. There's no in statute definition for what those are. There's not even a process for declaring what qualifies as an associated force. So right. you can use it if you're the president and, and George W. Bush and Obama both did use it to justify military action against all sorts of different terrorist groups on grounds that they are in some way associated, a complete weasel word that could mean anything, with al Qaeda. And this is the kind of thing that has never been th – there's not like a lot of – case history on this, something like declaring war on Japan and Germany in World War II, it just never posed the question of like, what is really Japan, right? Or like, you know, is, is maybe Korea a kind of Japan? Or, you know, people just operated with common sense definitions of the conflicts, they came to an end, etc. The conceptual boundaries between Al-Qaeda and not Al-Qaeda are genuinely somewhat fuzzy. And nothing in the authorization of the use of military force defines what those boundaries are, and it doesn't set up a process to adjudicate what those boundaries are. And so first President Bush and then President Obama, in a practical sense, they get you know, incoming requests from military and intelligence agencies, from allied foreign governments to like, you should do this, you should do that. It will make the country safer. And they're operationalization is if they think that it makes sense as a policy initiative to send some special forces or send some drones or send some bombs here, there, or wherever, that they are obligated to do that and that this all fits under the broad umbrella of the 2001 AUMF. So this is licensing troop deployments in several different African countries, you know, all kinds of groups that have a I guess you would say a conceptual relationship to al-Qaeda, but are not like literally harboring 9-11 terrorists or, or anything like that. And they're not operationally integrated in, in some kind of clear way. It's not like how – you know, there could be a Japanese military force that's on an island in the Pacific. They're not in Japan, but they are reporting to – the Japanese military command structure, that's like a normal war, we sort of treat a very wide range of Islamist terrorist groups like that as if they are sort of far-reaching tentacles of al-Qaeda, even though nobody really believes that there's that kind of centralized command and control structure. It's just if the broad foreign policy judgment is we should, we should be fighting these guys in Niger or whatever, it all 
it all kind of fits in, right? Just to kind of give some numbers here, uh, in May 2016, the Congressional Research Service did a report on how many times the 2001 AUMF has been used to justify military action. And it found that it's been used, it had been used at that point by both Bush and Obama a combined 37 times in 14 different countries, uh, with Bush using it 18 times and Obama using it an additional 19 times. So again, because those are only 14 countries, some of those times it's, okay, we got to go back in here. You know, you can assume that some of those are the same group either in different countries or in the same country over again. But I think metastasizing really is the kind of appropriate metaphor here. It's something where, you know, the AUMF authorized, you know, you have one thing, we're going to go fight it. And then if it goes elsewhere, we'll fight it then too. And it's gone a lot of places that weren't necessarily anticipated and may no longer be the the original organism. Well, it, it's tricky because to complicate a little bit what Matt was just saying, there are command and control lines sometimes, but it's not clear exactly how they work, how they operate, or who's taking orders. So to take one example, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, is, is basically the Yemen branch of Al-Qaeda. Arguably, it's the strongest one right now, given that Al-Qaeda central in Pakistan, Afghanistan has been pretty well decimated. They are a branch of Al-Qaeda. Uh, they have planned transnational terrorist attacks. They nominally answer to Zarqawi, the head of Al-Qaeda, but we don't really know how much operational control Zarqawi exercises over them. Then you can go a step removed to Al-Shabaab in Somalia, which is not as threatening to the West. They do transnational attacks in the region, but there's not as much evidence that they've done anything or planned anything you know, in the United States or Britain or something like that. They also have pledged Bayat loyalty to Al-Qaeda, but they don't have Al-Qaeda in the name. They remain a separate organization, mostly operationally with with a regional focus. And the U.S. has used the 2001 AUMF to go after both of these groups, AQAP and Al-Shabaab, which are technically all part of Al-Qaeda, but operate for very different reasons on very very different grounds and and have different relationships with the Al-Qaeda command structure that the war was supposed to uh, the 2001 AUMF was supposed to authorize. So like this whole th- – and there are more – even more diverse and, and, and divided groups in different places, not even to mention the whole ISIS mess. So not only is it like hard to determine whether or not this is like a conventional war, it's not even clear whether or not we have sufficient intelligence to determine whether or not any of these groups – could be termed to be operating in a way similar to a conventional military with a command and control structure. It's just really, really messy. But then I think, you know, the the flip side of this is that one, you can cast this as like, aha, Presidents Bush and Obama and now Trump following them have like run amok with this 2001 AUMF and they're stretching it in ways Congress never intended and blah, 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 blah. At the same time, all this time, it's not like Congress has been gone, you know, or like hiding out in Chicago somewhere. You've had Republican majorities, Democratic majorities, then Republican majorities again. You've had presidents with Congresses of the same party and presidents with Congresses of the opposite party. You've had lots of meaningful clashes over all kinds of different things. And what you have not had is a congressional majority that has attempted in any way to say, like, no, don't do this, right? It's not – we are not seeing a replay of the Ford or Reagan administrations in which there were significant tensions between a Congress that was at least attempting to restrict 
presidential autonomy in foreign policy and an executive branch that's heavily pushing back against that. You've instead seen presidents making court filings that I think many sort of civil libertarians find dubious and people like talking about it on the internet um, with some members of Congress being vocal, but no like there hasn't been an actual institution versus institution clash. And if anything, the closest you came to this was the opposite, was when the Obama administration told Congress that they wanted Congress to decide whether or not they had the authority to bomb Assad's targets. Congress both refused to sort of grant authority, but the Republican majority did not like adopt a dovish foreign policy posture. They just seemed to simultaneously say that they weren't going to do a vote and that Obama was too soft on Assad. So it's been a question of congressional neglect of its authority more than a presidential seizure of it, it looks to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that neglect is maybe the wrong word. It's just that in a Congress that can't, that increasingly can't legislate, period, um, the it is easier to to curse the darkness than to light a candle. Like the people who are complaining, who you tend to see complaining about any given use of military authority are a combination or, you know, complaining about we need new AUMF or a combination of the civil libertarians who think that the executive branch is doing things that are obviously illegal and hawks who are saying, gee, we need to make sure that the president has power to wage war on whoever he wants, wherever he wants. Like, you know, John Boehner, when they tried to kind of tell Obama, hey, by the way, do you think that this thing you're doing is legal, kind of strongly hinted, or do you perhaps think that the war powers resolution is unconstitutional? Because that's what John Boehner himself thought. So there's, you know, it's very hard to come up with an affirmative thing to push to replace the 2001 AUMF that satisfies both the people who think we need to limit presidential war powers and the people who think we need to explicitly broaden them so the civil libertarians shut up. Yeah. And, and that's why there's a new AUMF circulating in Congress right now. And, it, and it's kind of a mix of those two things, right? It attempts to 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 toe the line, right? This is this is sponsored by a Republican, Bob Corker, and a Democrat, Tim Kaine. And it attempts to toe the line in its structure between restricting presidential powers to prevent the 2001 bill from being a blank check, while also giving the president authority to find new terrorist groups and go after them if, if there's another ISIS, you know, a terrorist group that, that is also anti-American but comes out of nowhere. And I don't know if this kind of compromise, there have been various different attempts to rewrite the bill over the course of time, but it always founders upon the problem that Dara was just describing, that if you try to please the civil libertarians too much, then the hawks get mad. And if you try to please the hawks too much, the civil libertarians get bad. And no one can ever construct a like bipartisan majority for a bill that would do something because there's a fundamental divide in Congress over what direction the reform should go, more or less authority. So what would this new AOMF proposal actually do? So what it does is sort of two things. It's a great piece. I would encourage you if you're interested to go read it on Lawfare by Robert Chesney, uh, who's a law professor. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. And that does a really good job describing the bill in detail. But in broad strokes, what it does is provide a more precise definition of what 
the associated forces are that the United States can go after. It provides a process that the president has for designating new organizations that could be justified as targets. It also provides for congressional oversight in the sense that every four years, the bill doesn't have a sunset, so it never expires, but every four years, Congress is forced to reconsider it if this passes under the provisions of it. I don't really know why or how that works, but that's the way that it's written. Also, Congress has the ability to override presidential designations. Basically, what this does is give the executive branch a process for unilaterally expanding the AUMF to apply to different militant groups and then gives Congress uh, an avenue for exercising control if it thinks that the bill has been expanded too far. But this doesn't really change the status quo in a meaningful way, right? I mean, the the president already needs to do an annual defense appropriations request, right? And that bill provides a venue in which Congress could, if it wanted to, say something like, None of these funds should be used to chase around Islamist groups in West Africa, right? I mean, Congress has not done that because Congress does not like want to attempt to restrict the president's ability to chase around Islamist groups in West Africa. And this bill would create a formally separate mechanism for that, right? But I mean, the basic policy dynamic that like the president can decide – who we use force against, and then Congress can try to stop him later. You know, I mean, that that's essentially the status quo. Right. Yeah. The actual civil libertarians in Congress are, they're a little despondent about this, the status quo. Like, they, there was a great BuzzFeed piece with some quotes from members like uh, Thomas Massey of Kentucky saying, yeah, you know, we're pretty sure that this is all unconstitutional, but unless we get 218 votes to say it's unconstitutional, it doesn't matter. Like, this is a blind spot of oversight insofar as it's clearly something that Congress has the authority to do. So the courts haven't been willing to touch it. Like in a couple of cases, uh, members of Congress have attempted to sue the administration saying this thing you just did violates the authorities you have under the AOMF, and the courts have thrown it out because it's clearly a political question and members of Congress don't have standing to sue the president over, you know, things that Congress could fix if it wanted to. But at the same time, Congress, for the reasons we've discussed, isn't necessarily willing to exercise that authority. So the people who actually believe that the, you know, even though in theory there are checks and balances here, even though it's a matter of you know foreign policy where everyone agrees the executive has a little bit more authority, there's this hot potato as to what branch would be willing to deal with it. So the argument for passing something like Corker Kane from a civil libertarian standpoint is right now there's this incredibly broad interpretation of a law that nobody really thinks meets what the law was intended to do. So basically, there's lawless executive power. Now we are codifying something that is actually, you know, is basically practice, as Matt said. But in doing so, it means that the president isn't making a mockery out of Congress's intent in the past. Congress is giving the president express authorization to do things. Moreover, it also gives a pretty precise definition of what you would need to be statutorily in order to qualify as a group that the president could designate as a target for military force. So you have to be a co-belligerent 
of a militant group like ISIS or Al Qaeda or on the field of battle with them. With them, and now you know, like any language, you can abuse it. You could argue that Assad and ISIS have fought the same people at the same times. So you could maybe use that as a justification for designating him, but it is at least more constraint, slightly than what we have right now. And since what we have right now is basically the president doing whatever the hell he wants, like that's a step in the right direction, even if it's not fixing the underlying problem of huge presidential discretion. Well, I I would also say, I mean, for those who listen to to Tuesday's episode, that part of the impulse here just seems to be to like bureaucratize the president's unlimited authority to a greater degree. So like it sounds, under the, the new proposal, it would seem less made up Right. Like it's a little less Calvin ball. It's not it's not clear that any like anything that you could do under the current AUMF could not be done under the new AUMF. But there is a much more uh, detailed series of like box checkoffs and like submitting the form here kind of thing going on. I do think that to an extent makes people feel more comfortable with with certain kinds of situations. I mean, it does still leave us in the situation where what I think was understood in the fall of 2001 to be a kind of de facto declaration of war against the de facto government of Afghanistan, in which since they had never been the recognized government of Afghanistan, it never could have been a declaration of war in a traditional sense. But the Taliban was basically the government of Afghanistan. We were basically declaring war against them. We were basically going to go in, overthrow them, put some better regime in place, has become a completely open-ended thing that has no temporal or geographic scope limitations. And under the new system would be more a way of owning up to that fact than of changing it. The the whole like box checking and due process, because there is a process that we do argument, uh, gets us right at the door of John Doe, which I really want to discuss. Maybe we need to take a break before that happens. Let's do it. Uh, but then let's talk about John Doe. All right. We're sponsored this week by The Post. Uh, this is the untold true story of Pentagon Papers cover-up and the journalists who, who work to expose the truth. Uh, th- this is a movie that, you know, I think it is really going to appeal to the media's audience that's relevant to, to some of the stuff we're talking about on, on this episode. Um, and, and, you know, it was just like a cool, great movie. It was an Academy Award nominee for Best Picture. Uh, so you, you know it's good. It's also certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes if you prefer the views of sort of randos on the internet to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I mean, it's like a really stellar cast. Uh, Meryl Streep is in it. Tom Hanks is in it. Uh, You don't get much better than that. But they've also got Sarah Paulson, Bob Odenkirk, Tracy Letts, Bradley Whitford, David Cross, Bruce Greenwood, Carrie Coon, and Matthew Reese. It's like a really like truly all-star cast. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, It's it's about journalism. It's about politics. It's about uh, the interplay between the two, the role of media and democracy, uh, secrecy, presidential war-making powers, like like the whole deal. it's called The Post. It's about The Washington Post. Uh, you can watch it on Blu-ray uh, or you can rent it tonight on uh, any range of platforms. Uh, so check it out. So the reason that the AUMF is relevant isn't just because of the strikes that the Trump administration launched against Assad last week. It's also relevant because right now there's a lawsuit in federal court by a U.S. citizen who was turned over by Kurdish forces to the U.S. last fall, who the U.S. government claims was an enemy combatant for ISIS. He claims that he was kind of 
kidnapped. He was a freelance journalist. He was kidnapped by them for several months. He was coerced into doing some stuff for them during that time. There are lots of legal questions at play here because the the U.S. government, since they got his him into custody, has held him in detention without any indication of whether they're giving him a trial, when they're giving him a trial, what form of trial that would be, whether it would be a military commission, whether it would be you know a formal federal trial. And the ACLU is now filing a habeas corpus petition on his behalf saying you can't just do this. You can't just hold a dude for six months and not give us any indication of what you plan to do with him. There are lots of legal arguments involved here, but one of the legal arguments is in the some of the war on terror cases under the Bush administration, the Supreme Court held that the 2001 AUMF did justify the Bush administration's detention policy toward enemy combatants who were U.S. citizens, which raises the question of, does the current war against ISIS count as part of the 2001 AUMF? Because if it doesn't, then the government needs to find a different statutory authority to kind of win that arm of the argument. So even though the lawsuits by members of Congress got thrown out of court pretty readily uh, over the AUMF, the fact that a dude is currently being detained indefinitely because the Trump administration argues that, you know, this is where the two heads of the Hydra filing came in. The Trump administration argues that the AUMF gave them the authority to fight the group that this guy was with is not necessarily the question that's going to decide this case, but it certainly has become a live legal question. And that kind of gets us into more interesting and difficult questions. I think, you know, we all agree that the president has more authority in foreign policy than in domestic policy. But like some of the war on terror weird stuff has been, what about the point where those two things, you know, what about the brackish water here, where it's not clear whether this is foreign policy or whether it's the Constitution governing how U.S. citizens are treated? God, it seems so sketchy to me to justify uh, the indefinite detention of a U.S. citizen, right? It's one thing when it's foreigners. I don't support it personally. I understand the argument more. But when it's a U.S. citizen who has constitutional rights, the argument that because they might be an enemy combatant, they should be detained indefinitely without access to trial or charges. It, it seems like a stretch of yeah, the AUMF. To be clear, the the holding is not that indefinite detention is okay, period. The holding is that the U.S. government has the ability to hold somebody for a long time to figure out whether they should be tried in a military commission. You know, there's a question of like, maybe dude should be sent back to another country to be tried there. Maybe he should be tried in criminal court. The U.S. says that it hasn't figured that out yet, and therefore it's not ripe to bring the habeas petition. The ACLU says, you know, you've you've been holding the dude for six months. If you haven't figured out what you're going to do with him, when are you going to figure that out? But it is, it's definitely worrisome. I think, you know, earlier when it first came out that the government had this dude, there were some national security law scholars who were saying, yeah, eventually this is going to be a problem, but like we're going to give the government some time. We're not going to worry about a dude who's just been in custody for three weeks. And at this point, you know, some people, including Robert Chesney, who you mentioned earlier, are saying, okay, yeah, this is too long. This is, I'm I'm not going to defend this anymore. They need to fish or cut bait. And, you know, I mean, I would say this is also another species of the the basic reality that 
you know, there was a political and governmental response to 9-11 that had the character of an emergency, right, in which things are moving fast and there is a lot of discretion given to the executive and there is a hazy sort of broad brush congressional authorization to make it legal. And we're now 17 years later and like nobody has gotten around to writing the like statutory law of the global war on terror, right? You know, because these are like weird hypotheticals. But, you know, okay, what if a foreign militia captures a U.S. citizen abroad, brings him to American military and represents that this person is an enemy combatant? Like, what do you do? I think it's completely understandable that as of like October 17th, 2011, uh, 2001 rather, like they didn't like have a clear answer to that. But, you know, we're... It's like it's a long time now and it's – Matt it, literally looked at his watch to those it, of you listening on. Indeed. Um, and, you know, it's it's fun for law professors, I guess, to talk about these questions in terms of like what do some old laws say about this, right? But like the reason you have a legislature or one good reason to have a legislature is so that not every question needs to be assessed with regard to looking at what old laws say. But like you could you could write something about – this, right? And say, like, here is going to be the process. Here are the terms on which you will have access to federal courts or not. And, you know, if you understand, like, the pressures that members of Congress are under, it is, you see why this has not happened. But it amounts to the American constitutional system not functioning. Right. I mean, I think one of the problems here is that at this point, federal judges also appear to understand that Congress is just structurally incapable of doing even things that, you know, many in Congress would like to do. And the more that that gets internalized, the more likely the courts are to step in and say, well, somebody has to do this job. It might as well be us. I think we're seeing a related thing to that when courts are being asked to assess Trump administration decisions that under a previous president, there would be an assumption of deference, you know. This must have gone through the proper channels. They must have some reason for doing this. And because it's the Trump administration and it's so publicly known that many of these decisions are being made by instinct or, you know, on impulse, that federal courts are saying, well, even though generally we give deference to the executive on this kind of thing, in this case, we're going to, you know, we're going to hold them to a higher standard because of who the president is, which is not really how you want constitutional law to work, but also makes perfect sense when everybody knows that the way that decisions get made in the Trump White House isn't bureaucratic and proceduralized, and Congress is not necessarily in a position to stop that from happening. So back in the 2000s, uh, we used to talk a lot about an Italian philosopher named Giorgio Agamben, whose work focused on this notion of the state of exception, that central to politics was a zone in which the formal I mean, rules how much did we really talk about? I did. I talked a bunch yeah, about Agamben. Are you yeah, kidding? Yeah. Okay. He came up in Mr. certain Max circles. Mr. Max Weber, come on. Yeah. Why? Well, okay. In certain circles. Anyway. I never talked about him. Oh, well, all right. You needed to go to better parties. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Read better books. Actually, I don't like a lot of the Actually, work. The actual difference here is that Zach and I were both in college during the 2000s, and so we had a lot of conversations about a <laughs> That's true. Anyway, 
dude writes about this this concept of the state of exception being central to politics, which is that there's a place where the rules don't apply, even though there are also formal rules. Now, his conception of this has a lot of problems. There's particularly some unfounded readings of Holocaust literature in his work. But this notion that when you suspend the rules in certain places, that becomes, and you have to in a political system, that ends up becoming a central part of the way your political system operates is a really apt description of the way that successive emergencies, one, 9-11 as Matt was describing, and two, the Trump presidency and political polarization, as Dara was just talking about, have subtly and creepily changed the way the legal system thinks about force and about national security rules, right? You start with there being this constant sense of terrorist threat, allowing a a relaxation of people's authority. Then you see a dysfunctional Congress and a kind of wacky president, and the courts don't follow the rules the way that they're supposed to. Interpretations start shifting based on an understanding that the political system is in the throes of of a serious crisis. And so we have these successive states of exception, which now mean that the law doesn't operate in the way that it's ideally supposed to. Right. And if you combine that with increasing political polarization and politics as a nexus of identity, you end up creating an arms race, right, where one side sees what has just happened as a new crisis that requires their response. And then that response is seen by the other side as a new crisis that requires their response. If you think about like the filibuster, for example, the expanded use of the filibuster was justified by conservatives as well, President Obama is trying to do things that have never been done before and that would change America to something that we don't recognize. Therefore, it is, you know, it makes all the sense in the world that we are going to stop him wherever possible by requiring 60 votes for anything. Now, of course, you have Democrats as the minority in the Senate going, well, they did this to us. Therefore, it's now standard. And anything you can say about Obama turning America into something we don't recognize goes doubly true for Trump. So, of course, we're going to stand our ground and require this all the time. It's very hard to see how you hit a detente here. It's very easy to see how continued entente happens. But to push back a a little bit on that, right, part of where we started here with this sort of expanding presidential use of force, it relates to dysfunction in Congress, but there's also a a marked lack of real polarization around this, right? I mean, the sort of mainstream Republican view of Barack Obama was that he was a lawless – wannabe dictator, perhaps unduly influenced by Islamic radicalism or a secret closet socialist. And also he Can you an anti-colonialist? And also he should be able to detain people without trial or access to the federal courts indefinitely. Now Democrats have come in and like they say like, no, no, no. Like Donald Trump is an unprecedented threat to American freedom at home, to the alliance structure abroad, a dangerous loose cannon who can't be trusted with his finger on the nuclear button. He has no respect for democracy or the rule of law. And also, he has an inherent Article 2 authority to launch wars against Syria. And like, 
you know, I mean, congressional Democrats have their own sort of wishy-washy view on this. But like, you know, I, I thought like the, the Washington Post's, you know, unsigned editorial on the Trump Syria operation, which is remarkable in this regard. Like Post editorial board, you know, under Fred Hyatt has had a, you know, moderately hawkish view of like every issue for all 15 years that that I've been in Washington. So it's it's sort of not surprising that they were like rah-rah for a strike on Syria that has no basis in international or domestic law whatsoever. But they make no effort to like incorporate this into their larger line about Donald Trump, which um, is very alarmist. If anything, I would say maybe a little bit too alarmist. But then like when it actually happens, it's like... Yeah, absolutely. This dangerous madman needs to be able to start wars with no constraint. And in it, fact, the, the most presidential thing he does is take military action. Right. Yeah, according to the Washington Press Corps, that's when he truly became president, the first serious strike last year. Right. I mean, and, and you know, and, and Mike Allen, you know, the second time around in Axios said, like, Trump looked like a normal commander in chief. And, and I don't even think that Allen meant that as, like, gushing substantive praise, but like to sit behind a desk and to order that bombs be dropped on a foreign country is very like normalizing to a lot of people. It makes them feel more comfortable with Trump than doing bad tweets. But th- that's exactly the point, right, is that this is the the corrosive ideology of the war on terror at play. It used to be the case that when a president took the United States to war, People got really agitated about it. It was a big deal, national, everybody cares. And if the president did something secretly, well, holy shit, that's not good, right? But that, that's creepily and, and at a faster rate since 9-11, an exponentially faster rate, no longer become the norm. Now we just think the president should be able to bomb in different places because the terrorist threat is so complicated and diffuse and, and scary to a lot of people that we need to have this rapid responsibility but for it. I, it doesn't really I matter. Just, I feel is. like this Syria thing is like a whole other degree of off the rails, though. Like, it doesn't relate to the terrorist threat at all. I, I had thought at first, I just assumed that the 2001 AUMF will be invoked to justify anything. Yeah, yeah. So I just assumed it was in this case, but then I looked and saw like it wasn't. And they were just like, oh yeah, the Constitution says there's no constraint on presidential war-making power. And everyone was like, oh, that's that's fun. So there also is a secret memo. In, in February, Senator Kane and other Democrats, you know, came out and said, hey, the Department of State has drafted this secret seven-page memo that connected last year's Assad strikes to the AUMF. It hasn't released that to the public. It should release that to the public. And the weird thing about this is not just that the Trump administration simultaneously is claiming it doesn't need to use the AOMF and that if it wanted to use the AOMF, it could, but also that apparently there's some concern among these senators who have seen this memo that it could also be used to justify a bloody nose strike on North Korea, which is a whole nother different thing. And again, you know, you could theoretically argue that if North Korea poses a threat to the national security of the United States, that like you wouldn't need the AOMF on that. This is pure speculation because I have not seen this secret memo. If I had seen it, I would have posted it on the internet for all of you to see it. But if you think about the way that President Trump talks about Assad, where he's very fixated on the use of chemical weapons, he sees that as a strong international norm that should be enforced. And you think about, you know, the 
ways in which the U.S. would be using a bloody strike against North Korea's nuclear weapons system in particular. It seems that there might be an argument by the Trump administration that the use of weapons of mass destruction is somehow a terroristic act inherently, that it somehow justifies the use or or potential use of weapons of mass destruction is now what justifies U.S. force, which would be a massive expansion of power. And also a bloody nose strike against North Korea is exactly the sort of thing that theoretically Congress would be saying, we never gave you the power to do this in 2001, even more so than Syria, which at least geographically, you know, like (laughs) there is there is a terrorist group in Syria that the U.S. is fighting under the AOMF. Therefore, the idea of, quote, U.S. in Syria, close quote, might not strike anyone as all that weird. Can, Can I just like ask what is with this administration and secret memos? There's just so many of them. There's Comey memos. There's Devin Nunes memos. Now there's war memos. Like, what's the next memo? I would suggest that one of the symptoms of a state of exception is policy being made through secret memos. And one symptom of an escalation of a state of exception is the other party talking about the presence of secret memos as a way to pressure them into getting released rather than understanding the norm of secrecy as meaning they can't talk to the public about them. Like, even Ron Wyden, who has been, like, the biggest canary in the coal mine in the war, on terror doesn't come out and say there's a memo they're not releasing or I mean sometimes but more often he's he like asks questions in public hearings that make it clear that there's something he's heard in private hearings that's much less you know careless than there is a memo (laughs) yes I'm really hung up on this Syria thing because well for one thing I, I do think that some people on the left did a little bit of a disservice by phrasing airstrikes on ISIS targets as bombing Syria, quote unquote. Um, Obviously, those were bombs and it was in the territory of the sovereign state of Syria. But there is a meaningful difference in international law between bombing a rebel force, a a non-state actor, and bombing a sovereign state actor. And like, I don't want to in any way associate myself with the like pro-Assad Twitter elements. But like, it does mean something, or I think it should, to like be the duly constituted government of a country and like to be attacking a sovereign state's military forces is a different kind of international legal act than um, bombing ISIS. And then in terms of connection to congressional authorization, it's like – it's really different. You know, like ISIS's 2001 AUMF was like a bit of a stretch. Um, but it is genuinely true that the 2001 AUMF is a vaguely written document. Like you don't need to like how vague it is. But like it, it really is vague. Like that's why it has proven so elastic. Um, and there's like a congressional process by which you could replace it with a less vague one. The assertion that in a situation like there was no emergency – Related to Syria, right? There's no argument that it was like we had to act so quickly. That In we fact, couldn't... the president even tweeted that we didn't need to act that quickly. <laughs> it could come soon or it could come later. I forget exactly the phrasing that he used. Right. But yeah. Like nothing was happening. Like there was no reason Congress couldn't have come together to to do this vote. They just didn't didn't want to. Like I don't even think he would have lost the vote. No, there's, it's there's also, of course, a deeply whack argument about 
international responsibility being made here, right? Because at the same time that the strikes are happening, the Trump administration is saying that it wants the war in Syria to end quickly, which like the only way at this point that's going to happen is for Assad's forces to win. And it's saying that it has no responsibility to help the victims of the Syrian refugee crisis that like, you know, it's admitting it's admitted fewer than 10 a month for the last few months, you know, for several months, even after the official refugee ban had a specific hold on refugees from Syria. It, you know, the argument there tends to be, well, this is a regional problem and other countries in the region need to step it up. And that argument is now being made on the military side as well with this proposal for like an Arab force to go in and protect Syria. But Apparently, when it comes to the use of chemical weapons or like something egregious enough that the president decides it's worth sending a message, then the U.S. all of a sudden has responsibility internationally. Yeah, there's never been a consistent argument or explanation as to why it's worth going to war to protect the norm against chemical weapons use versus any overall humanitarian responsibility to alleviate suffering in Syria. This isn't like a consistent – it's laughable on its face to say that Donald Trump has a consistent humanitarian justification for military action. And I, I just I, – I cannot take that seriously, right? It's Which more, is, of course, the problem that Congress and the courts are dealing with now as well. Right. Like there's, there's more layered stuff going on there owing in part to the president's daughter showing him photos of gassed Syrian children and like that – really becoming the reason why the U.S. has done this probably unlawful, maybe maybe morally justifiable, but not legally justifiable series of military strikes on the Assad government. But I mean, you know, there's this is also a case where, you know, you would want, I would want Congress to be asserting itself more clearly here because there is a complicated interrelated series of issues related to Assad, related to Iran, related to the nuclear deal with Iran, related to the ongoing diplomacy with North Korea. And these are questions that are contested, I think, clearly inside the administration as well as, you know, elsewhere in the American political system, which means that it is like a good time for people who would take an interest in like a much larger American involvement in a region-wide war with Iran to like insist on having a voice in shaping like what what are we actually doing here? Like what is the scope and, and limits of, of this authority? And I, I 100% understand the view by I think most members of Congress that they have like bigger fish to fry than – acting as like Assad's lawyers in the case of of this this chemical weapons issue. But if you would be really upset if you found out tomorrow morning that there's like a huge war with North Korea happening, then like you have to be involved at the assertion that the president has the authority to just go do that, right? Like, as it happens, a limited airstrike against Assad does not, like, spiral out of control, um, which is great. But Trump has just saying, and, you know, he's not unique in this regard, although I, I do think it's it's a little unusual to be saying that, yeah, like, there's just no 
no limit at all that he just has an inherent authority as commander in chief to order military strikes on foreign governments whenever he wants. And because we know there are sort of possible bigger wars that the country could get into, like members of Congress need to uh, try to do something. And now we're or back to Dara's, yeah, hosts. N- Now we're back to Dara's point about the boiling frogs. Right. Well, I mean, the boi- the state of exception is the boiling frog. I think that, you know, we've just we we've at this point have an evaporating frog. But the obscure Italian philosopher is in the show notes, uh, so, I, so I can enlighten myself later. With that, I think we should leave you all. Thanks, uh, Zach, for, for joining us today. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to uh, Bridget Armstrong for serving as our producer, as usual, but also as engineer today. It is a, a, a banner production engineering extravaganza. Thanks, Bridget. Thank you, Bridget. And uh, the weeds will be back on Tuesday.